Welcome to Soundwalker. This is your host, David Rothenberg. This is episode 23, Glenn Moore's Bass, The Sound of Desire. I have actually known Glenn Moore for 42 years. We met when I was a young student at the Naropa Institute, 1980, when his band Oregon was teaching there. I was a nervous high school senior desperate to meet my heroes, this wonderful band, Oregon, somewhere in between chamber music and jazz. They improvised an acoustic, classical-type instrument. They were teaching. I went out there, going to college a few months later, vastly anticlimactic. I'd heard recently that Glenn Moore had quit the band a few years ago. He was living somewhere near the Mexican border with some horses, a bunch of dogs, animals. What was he doing there? Why had he escaped? I had to go and find out. It just it's the sound of desire that's <laughs> coming out of the thing. I'll say that it's something about Glenn Moore's intonation, his way of sliding between notes, a way of vibrato on a sound, a kind of twanginess, these low notes that most people don't think of twanging like that, that you can usually tell that it's you playing and that it brings a real personality all the music and particularly you know the thing that I always liked about Oregon and the original group is everyone was a real personality playing their instruments and that you could imagine if you had like four musicians just like Ralph Towner it would have been very different everybody very precisely full of all these harmonic different compositions and churning things out or Paul McCandless you know so precise he's so exacting playing that you know exactly what he's doing. He can play oboe higher than anyone else. He can improvise an instrument that no one can improvise on. But it's very clean and precise. And then um, Colin would use these traditional instruments his own way. He's playing his own way. So maybe, sure, he studied with Indian tabla players. Maybe he went his own direction with all these things as a percussionist. And you would add this, this earthiness. It's kind of like, um, of everyone, the most unique single sound you were lucky to find each other to fit together this way and that it's so hard to have a, a group doing this kind of music like that where the personalities come out. Pretty much in all, in all the music you play you can always tell them it's you. It's, it's, 
and it's your, it's your own direction. It's not like the mainstream of, of the jazz-based story, I'd say. And, that, and that's, I think, something we need to convey in this storytelling to people who've never thought about the bass ever. Heard the bass, they, they think the bass players sound the same. So. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well said. How would you encourage listeners to, if they, if they want to understand the bass better, how should they listen to the bass player? Huh. Well, there's been an absolute overuse of the bass in, in pop music when. Uh, probably pretty much as a rock and roll instrument, there was a, there were a tremendous number of wonderful electric bass players. In that, I think of I can't even name the bands because I'd never listened long enough to any of that music to to particularly pick someone out. But every once in a while, somebody would be playing some oldies, and I hear this just amazing playing because you could hear it. So Roberta Flack, all kinds of singers would be playing and the bass player would be doing just the greatest, most inventive things. And some of the most interesting bass playing I hear now in this part of the world comes from guys playing Mexican music on the tuba. I heard before I moved down here that there's been an incidence of quite a few thefts from public schools of tubas because it's preferred over the guitar, the, the bass instrument, traditional for that music. So, so there's like an underground ring of you know, illicit tubas for sale out of the back of pickup trucks. Yeah, from yeah, high school, so. yeah. There's uh, tubas, but yeah, what to listen for? I don't know. I think that the I got attracted, particularly attracted to the the harmonic aspect of what notes are being played, and not too many notes, and and you know, in accompanying. And I don't know what to say about exactly how to listen, except if it if it pleases you, it must, if the music pleases you, it must be good. And the bass playing usually has to be good in order for. And there's a tendency now. There's a lot of synthesizer bass used, and, but I think Jocko helped a lot of people to hear music better, to better hear, because he could play every and any one of the parts. He could play the melody, he could play the harmony, he could play the hand, the roots. So he, he really defined, I think, for the modern day, though he's gone now and I don't know who's Who's replacing him? I don't. I think the world's falling apart, maybe because there aren't enough good bass players. But there are more basses being made, they say now, than violin.
violins or other. The bass is having a, a real renaissance in, in building. I mean, the last bass convention I went to, there were 1,400 people there with their basses from all over the world. It was pretty amazing. No, I think people value that the bass is important, and I also think they they value the acoustic bass yeah. more and more as, as something like real and special. And, and as much as there's sub-bass electronic sounds in all kinds of pop music, the idea of, sure. of an actual bass yeah. instrument doesn't surprise me that more and more people want to play it because it's so real and present. Yeah. And yeah. But I think most people haven't thought about the different ways people play it and, and the, the actual quality of sound. Yeah. Well, there's a... Most of the... Most styles of music that use it, I mean, Elvis used acoustic bass. Wise men say Only fools rush in I went to college and really started playing a lot of music with a lot of different people and started listening heavily to Scala Farrow and whose sound I loved. Soon thereafter, or within still when I was still in college, Ralph went off to Vienna and studied the guitar. And the guitar is such a specific great string sound. Um, you know, that combination of the nail and the fingernails and finger in the sound. I think I had to, uh, I definitely tried to come up to the level of sound production that, uh, that I heard from Ralph. And uh, it took quite a while to get anywhere near that. Um, and it still was a completely different instrument, but really trying to get the tone of the notes really clear and clean. And uh, so I think that that whatever, how I didn't really, I didn't really achieve that sound though when I went back and played I had a chance, Scott Lafaro's bass was finally restored from the, it was 35% of it was burned up in the accident that killed Scotty. And when the instrument was redone by uh, uh, Colstein, not Colstein, Barry Colstein, uh, in New York, why he put it, 
put it together, but it was it had steel strings put on it. And Scotty, I'd only ever heard play gut strings on it. And it was an instrument the same age, approximately. No, it wasn't as old. It was a hundred years younger than than this one that I have. Not a great sound. But still pretty old. Yeah, still pretty old. So I went back to Ithaca. They when they they were they restored the instrument and several people, Mark Johnson, who was Bill Evans' last bass player, borrowed the instrument and did a record. And uh, a couple of other a guy who learned all Scotty's solos went back and did some recording on it. And neither of those guys who were these are two of the great Pizzicato bass players, they didn't really rave about the opportunity to, get to play with his instrument. But they they took the Colstein kept that instrument for a while and what you could go in and play it. I went in once and picked up this bass and played it and I'm like, God, what is that? And it was it was Scotty's bass. been working I switched to this tuning because I didn't play I can do these alternate dominant things which triad, a C triad, and then a tritone away from that is F sharp. So playing so the second 
on fourth tuning you can't play those. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't work. But here. switched to this tuning in the recent years, right? Yeah, just yeah. when I moved down here and stopped performing other people's music, it's like, okay, I could put this tuning on and figure out a way to shift enough to play those things in tune that are... So do you, does, has it led you to play different music since being down here? Yeah, just I have different things under my hand, so... And because these uh, fifths tuning, it means I have access to major, minor sixth and major sixth intervals, and I can go back the other way down to a tritone. So here was a whole bunch of real estate that I never got to check out. So I'm like, okay. But didn't uh, like those early Ralph Towner tunes have a lot of those kinds of intervals in them? As opposed well, they to had all sorts of things, yeah. but I had to do what I could reach. Right. So, how did you do it then? Because it seems like I know I never went to, I never played any of those things with those guys. Right. I'm just working on them now, and if I was working with those guys, I would have proceeded much quicker through this. Mm. But there was so much water under the bridge. towards and most people fail you um, guys succeeded in because that. I didn't quit when Colin died it was hard from then on it was difficult it was not magic there were nights when it was pretty damn good but it but I was it was so good at first that giving up on it it didn't seem like an option at the time in retrospect it was it was stupid not to just quit and go ahead. But if I'd done that, you know, I wouldn't have... I guess I would have met you, because Colin was there. At the <laughs> yeah, we met before then, it's yeah. true. But on the other hand, you, you know, it's, it's like a Well, the, it's all a the projects that I yeah, did after yeah, that, yeah. I couldn't tour with them. Because the promoters in Europe said, no, I don't want to hire you with Jerry Grinelli and somebody else. Jerry and I made this great record together, and nobody would hire us. And Jerry got really pissed at me, because said, well, you just don't want this bad enough that you, I, like, I would have to quit. So 
In retrospect, I can say that I should have quit and let that be a period that was pretty well immortalized by great, amazing recordings. Are you the only one in the band who feels that way? Oh, yeah. Everyone else says, what? Of course we had to keep going, right? Well, they were, they were up in the air, and we were pretty much, when Colin, when Colin died, we could still play, after like 12 records, we could play any of that material. And if someone wasn't there, we could play another person's part. We knew everything that we knew together. And when Treelock Gertrude came along, then it was a whole different deal. He was more interested in the fact that he just got these brand new symbols from Zildjian instead of the ones he had before, because they were free. But he'd make music on those and call them. Any symbol he had, he'd pick from the bottom of a pile of some midtown store that he'd find a thing like this. The only thing that could work for a whole bunch of things, and every single percussion instrument just made whatever it was that happened, whether it was a, a paper filled with sugar that he could use for the percussion or, or a timpani. He could play the marimba. He could sight read on the marimba. He was a trained orchestral percussionist. He could play every single instrument that a percussion orchestra percussionist plays. But he never wanted to show off. No, not at all. And that's rare for a, yeah. like a percussionist with cool. Yeah, toys. and he could play, and he 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 could play the orchestra music. He'd made his own parts for the soldier's tale. I have his music that he did in his teenage years to make his own parts to learn all these percussion things. And then he just made a combination of Indian instruments and he cut the kungas in half so he could sit on the floor and play the kungas. And he had, oh, he just had all kinds. He had like the perfect triangle that was just every note. So everything that he had was just the most perfect thing that he could find. And the other two drummers who came after him didn't care, didn't listen to the recordings of him playing, never. So finally it was just, it was a slog. Yeah, they didn't have this sense of trying to be a virtuoso yeah, ensemble person. Yeah. Like it's a rare thing. Yeah, which, I mean, everybody in the band when we started, everybody within two years had taken up another instrument that they played on stage and uh, was playing it in virtuosic ways just because the situation called for the, here's something missing. But I also think the idea of being a virtuoso at playing with other people rather than showing off. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it was really being able to surprise one another on every single piece, night after night, different things. And there were crises we went through, different people freaking out over what their perceived weaknesses were and how they felt about that. And I mean, 
having some driving 700 miles in one sitting talking about you know some bad thing that had happened and always the first I don't know the first half of those the first six years we recorded every single concert and then by God sat in the truck the next day and listened to it and lots of times we'd come off the stage and people are just pissed off at each other and themselves and we listen to the concert and hear oh my god I forgot to, we did that and we did this and that because we were playing bad on the last piece where we thought that was it and it was god we'd end up just jubilant and, and just as let's go do it again I mean it was it was just a remarkable group, but I couldn't really see the, uh, my, when Colin died, Colin died, I came home for the birth of Alexander, and I wasn't in the bus when the accident happened. So I have a new baby, we're crying because Colin is dead, but we have new life have to be mother and father and so six months later we got together in New York Samantha's still breastfeeding Alexander and the anxiety of flying and being in this different place he stopped breastfeeding and I started making him food in the middle of the night making oatmeal and fruit various things and I had a, here was tree lock and it wasn't, it didn't really work, but Colin had chosen tree lock. Colin said, you know, when I get tired of doing this shit, you get tree lock, because he has a much better jazz sense than I do. And he, he always felt that he, was, he wasn't really a jazz player. He was, he loved Indian music and he loved classical music, but the jazz thing was a little. Was that his perceived weakness? Oh yeah. But then he worked with Jack DeJeanette, and pretty soon he was playing what everyone was playing. He was totally capable of the, the best, what, Jon Christensen or the others. Not in the same way, because he didn't, he didn't have the references, a history of growing up with listening to all those jazz drummers. Well, some kind of jazz fans don't like the way Jon Christensen played. Yeah. Because it was so European. Yeah. It was a different kind of funk. Exactly. Yeah. There was a real, you know, racism. <laughs> there. Yeah. For Christensen. But, so, I mean, the palette was huge at that point because those guys were playing. We made, they made Richie Taito at the same time we made music of another person there. They just started with that, they started with that. So our bands were, at the 10th anniversary of ECM, while we toured with uh, Who played Wichitaito first? Oregon or Garbarek? Those guys, but Jim Pepper wrote
with Jim Pepper when he was 18 years old. He hadn't written that yet, but uh, he moved to New York and started to had a group with Don Cherry, mm -hmm. and they they played Wichita Toe. And Don Cherry went all over Europe and taught Wichita Toe in every clinic he ever played. It's five bars long. Mm -hmm. It's easy to learn. It's all one scale, except one of the chords doesn't have an F sharp in it. Um, so he taught Garberick when he was young, and Christensen and those people, so they learned it. He taught it to everybody all over. So they made the record, and we heard the record, and went home and started playing it. But they played it in B flat because it was a horn. There was a horn playing, so they did it in B flat. And because we did it with first of all with the sitar and the guitar, we played it in D because. perceived weaknesses I'm curious Colin said I can't really play this jazz stuff yeah yeah he couldn't when we would when we first got together Ralph and I played a variety of jazz that with Bill Evans influence and Scott LaFaro's influence this was like very on top of the beat really playing these triplet figures and uh, with an underlying triplet feeling everywhere in the jazz music. And neither Ralph nor Paul could feel that, and we would lose them. We'd start four bars into something, and they wouldn't know where we were, where the time was. So we had to back off and play more kind of in the center of the beat in order to, in order to play with them. It took six years. So what was Ralph's perceived weakness? Oh, what did he worry about? Um, Manfred Eicher's whole deal. Was, as far as we were concerned, that was what he could launch himself into all kinds of situations. He didn't perceive it as a weakness, but his inability to uh, 
to want to slow it down and play it in the center of the beat. He was impatient of it. He wanted that. He wanted to go hit ours. How did that, how did that uh, connect to Manfred Eicher, that impatience? Well, Manfred loved that. That was just fine with him. He didn't buy But it Ralph, too. in the context of the band, his weakness is his talent, his ability to make, to write compositions that are just perfect. How does you that know? strength become a weakness? Well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, how does I it I mean, happen? he had, he had so many, well, he played so many instruments that the band had to play a set. When we'd sit down to plan a set, we had to play something that had him playing the instruments he was strong at with the latest tune he'd written on each of those instruments. So we had to play, you know, the 12 or 8, maybe 18 pieces we'd play in a night. They had to be only from this certain block of things, which left out a bunch of things that Others of us who wrote much less had written, but wouldn't be able to play because he wasn't playing the 12 string on it, or the classical, or the horns, or the piano. I mean, so, you know, we had to, until we had a meeting about halfway through the band's life, where Christine helped me with this, and we played in. Massachusetts. We played out on what island is it out there? Martha's Vineyard. Hmm? Yeah. We went out there, had this pretty dramatic meeting where we decided that we had to change the way we chose the music and that each one of us could choose an entire set and then go over it with everybody. If there was a problem, that something wasn't included, that needed to, somebody was left out in any way, then, well, then we could, then that person would play a solo somewhere or play a duet with some. So once we started doing that, we reached back through all of our repertoire that we'd ever had and started putting together just amazing sets of new music and earlier music. And it meant that pieces that everybody wasn't crazy about would reappear, and when they did, there'd be a different way of playing them, and everyone would be drawn in. So it, it, I mean, we had to be able to be in this place where fresh things could happen with things that we already knew, like the back of our hand, but here's a different situation. So we would always play a brand new piece that we had just looked at and, and had no plan for how the solos would go, or what, what material of the song would have solos. Sometimes there was a, there would be a, you know, like a, a vamp on, of some kind on some key in an odd time signature maybe, and that might be the most interesting thing. So we would just go up having looked at the notes and the scales and, and just go out and play it. And we didn't know how it was going to start, or what the middle would be, or how we'd end it. But we would do that. Treelock came out, he only wanted to play stuff 
that we had rehearsed until we were tired of it and had discovered all the hard things about it but not, not performed our way through them. So with him we could never play anything new. Never. So we would play a lot of free music so we could get to places that we would never get otherwise. But most of the free pieces would show Ralph a combination of instruments that had never been heard, maybe in some register or something. And he would, the next day after this had appeared in a free piece, the next day there'd be a brand new song with that, featuring that thing that was unusual. So, I mean, that was the magic of the situation. But taking things out and letting the performance itself determine what would happen with it. So there just wouldn't be this, okay, you solo, then I'll solo, then he'll solo, then. So Treelock would never play a free piece? No, he'd play free he pieces. We could drag him around that way, but he'd never play a piece that had just been written. Right, he didn't He, like he refused that. to do that. So that cut off a whole, like, half of our nurture. And when they finally came, when after... Trilock went away, we had a period of going back to playing as a trio, which put a lot of pressure on both Paul and Ralph that they didn't like. They wanted somebody playing the time so they could concentrate on their own thing and having played with Trilock whose time was impeccable. And that's, I mean, he, he had a lot of great talents. But with Mark Walker, when he came on, he would do anything, but he would never listen to anything that we'd ever done before. He had no idea what Colin had done, was completely... And he'd said that he would play more hand drums and things, but he just came out with a drum set, and pretty soon there were 16 microphones on the drums. We're playing with monitors and moaning and bitching that we can't even hear ourselves, everybody's straining. And so we went out that way. Right. And there were live gigs where the sound would be just right, but more often than not, there were just big drum nights. Right, it becomes more like... And once the synthesizer came in, right. after, after Colin's daughter was born, we took a year off and Ralph was listening a lot to Weather Report, and we were always, we started at the same time as working with we were always being, Joe Zoltan would come around and say, oh man, your little band, it's so little. And, but his drummers would come to our performance away from that situation. We had the ears of some of those people, some of them. But Ralph wanted, so Ralph got the synthesizer. Once he did, we stopped being able to play acoustically. Everybody had to have synthesizer in their monitor. The sound went to shit. And Colin hated it. And when Colin died, Ralph was like, he was very sorry when Colin died, but like, before long, he was saying, well, Colin was going to quit the band anyway. So there was this pretty, just like, awful feel in that. So, 
I mean, it was a it was a miracle that the early things happened, and thereafter we hung on for much too long. And nobody could really say that. And toward the end, while there were nights when Ralph would go out and his certain one of his digits wouldn't work, and he'd have to play around problem, physical problems, and Paul was beginning with Parkinson's to feel just out of it. So. So what was Paul's perceived weakness earlier on? Just, he just, he would, he was such a virtuoso that he would overplay like mad. Just. Because he could do what no one else could do on the instruments he played. And he'd go to, he'd run off to Paris and get a sopranino, bring it back and play all the things he'd been playing on other instruments with his E-flat instrument, just like, just so, Paul's just too good to slow down and take a breath. After we did seven albums for them, we got to hire a, a world-class engineer named David Green. David Green used a nagra and crawled into the pyramids with Paul Horn and recorded inside the pyramids. Okay. So he knew he you know, it's about this size. The Nagras were a little bigger, yeah, but they were they were the amazing yeah. tape recorders. Yeah, tape recorders. this day are prized. Yeah, they're great. So we, we were actually able to get an in, our own engineer and our accountant, who was Ravi Shankar's accountant, was writing in first class one day between somewhere and somewhere and sat next to a Warner Brothers guy. And uh, the Winter Consort had sort of, a, sort of an audience from the performance uh, record that we'd done with them called Road in 1970. <laughs> Thank you. 
somehow or another, Gary, our accountant, Gary Haber, managed to talk this guy into listening to some of the things that we'd done. And God, Warner Brothers signed us to a six record contract with just a bigger pile of money for each record. And whatever we want, just whatever we wanted. So, that, so we had a choice of going with Warner Brothers or signing with ECM because ECM wanted us in Europe. But they didn't have any grand plans for us and weren't going to change anything. And they really believed that we'd, Manfred thought we'd probably do three albums and that would be it because it was just these four guys and he didn't have that much faith in it. So finally, already Paul, uh, Ralph and Colin had you know, deals with ECM already besides the band to be able to make solo records. And Manfred didn't want Paul or I as we each got to make a record for him, but he we waited too long to make them and then were disappointed by his stuff. So the band decided to go ahead and go that we didn't want a European label. We wanted Warner Brothers. We wanted to stay in New York where we were all living and be able to be there. So the band decided to sign with Warner Brothers, which meant that we could hire David Dean, and we had never been in a studio during the day. We could record <laughs> at night, <laughs> you know, after 10 o'clock at night. You guys can have it until 6 a.m. So all of our early records have been recorded at night. And only half of the half of the 16 channels they had worked. Usually seven or eight, but, but you never knew when one of those is going to go sideways and you finish something and you get, well, you get it. It's, it's not there. Why do you make that? I don't know. Can you guys go get something to eat? I'll see if I can find something. So, <clears throat> when we had a chance, we had a unlimited budget. I, I don't know. I, I forget what they offered us, what the first record paid, but it was, you know, it let us make a record in a first-class studio that was out in the woods somewhere with everything, all the machines, everything that worked. We could record anytime we wanted to, and we were there with David Green, with the best engineer, who would go into a studio and change everything about how it was set up. Every aspect of what the room sounded like. The heat. People would stand around and go, well, that doesn't work. And yeah, the guy next to me says, yeah, you're right, it doesn't work for me. And neither did that, neither did that, neither did that. An hour and a half later, he's got the room singing and ready to go. And you can record it and put it on their good speakers or you can put on this little four-inch piece of crap that you can watch the corner vibrate and it sounds. So he's like, here's how it sounds. So you were making this record a whole different way. Yeah, he had, he had a whole different way. He worked with Phil Ramon. He was, he's 
studied with Phil and then became like his partner. And uh, David, it's amazing. So we got to record during the day, which was a different deal. And actually, I think the second day we were in the studio there, we just, we had like beautiful room, forest of Neumanns and just everything worked. And we'd already made, I don't know, eight, ten, ten albums. So we, we knew how to record them. And we'd saved some pieces that we didn't put on Vanguard because we knew they just never, we'd never get any money for them and it was a waste. So we saved Aurora. We saved some good pieces for this thing. So, um, so we recorded this in most, like three quarters of the album was this after dinner, after a marvelous dinner the second night. We were so happy. We went back and recorded three quarters of the album. Just boom, 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 boom. Maybe seven pieces that were just like drop dead. Freaking perfect. So the album's called Out of the Woods. And it's got a pretty stilted cover. It wasn't my choice, but but the inside of it, I was at the Naropa, Colin and I were at the Naropa Institute where we were teaching for the summer because there was, was my chance to study with the Tai Chi teacher that I always wanted to study with and there was the world's best living rolfer in Boulder, Colorado. They're married to a woman who'd been a girlfriend of mine in, earlier on and she ran the part of a Trumpist camp there. So we went out there, and so when it came time to, we just recorded that album. When it came time for the pictures, they flew those guys in, and a photographer, an L.A. photographer, who took 25 rolls of pictures of us in this field in Estes Park, in the, in the mountains up above Boulder. You had to walk up and walk up and walk up and then here is like grass this high and just oh, top of the world, top of the Rockies. So that was, yeah, that was a good album. This was my first introduction to, to the band. Yeah. Just, I remember just hearing the opening notes, the yellow bell, you know, just some rhythm like, oh, this really is in between classes. guys who was 
who had this job of going and finding the yellow bell, which was the note for this ring. The yellow bell was the like do. This is the tone. So he would do whatever he had to do, go over where he, wherever he had to go to come up with this a unique version of the tone for it. Whoever this guy is and his whole reign and this everything is going to be related to this. So Colin found that we could. Somebody was always finding some absolutely perfect thing. So a lot of Ralph's pieces, the best titles came from Colin because there was a show at the museum of modern art that had this. So the picture on the first album was a show that was in town when we recorded Music of Another Present Era. Excellent title. Yeah, excellent title. Another Present Era. <laughs> Music of Another Present Era. It's here. You don't know it, but we do. Here it is. We were lucky. I mean, it only lasted three records. Glenn Moore made a wonderful solo album called Dragonetti's Dream for Vera Brandes's incredible record label Intuition that she ran for many years, put out hundreds of albums. This is the woman who, at age 17, produced the Colm concert that became Keith Jarrett's incredible million-selling album, the best-seller, the best-selling album on ECM Records, kept that label alive for decades, and Vera started her own label, and she's the one who dared to let Glenn make a completely solo bass record. Yeah, yeah, which was the name of our farm. Yeah. Rocks. Oxide. Oxide. <laughs> 
Yeah, beautiful. So then, to make that album, I had my friend in Bovina, because I was living in Bovina at the time with, uh, with the chickens, Alexander's 75 chickens. And uh, I went to this Dutch guy's house. He had a very good supply of marvelous marijuana and we sat and listened to this all these pieces that I'd recorded and made up titles for them and names and sequenced them and spent some time doing that so they it didn't didn't sell any albums but it was it, it it's a it's a nice album Dragonetti's dream. So the I took the Vera music backwards being rolled backwards through the machine and thought this is probably how this great bass player living in he he played for Beethoven, he played for Napoleon. And he had a few he was an Italian he had a few words of English, a few words of French, a few of something else and so he's started trying to explain to Napoleon something about what he was playing or what he wanted or whatever. And Napoleon finally, all the, go a sentence with three different languages in it and then another sentence with three other languages in it. He said, just shut up and play. <laughs> so that's Napoleon's great line for Dragonetti. But a lot of it, he met a lot of people because he, he was such a, a fabulous player. He could conduct the orchestra with his. Yeah, I don't think it matters how many copies sold of this album because people remember it. So yeah, as I listen to it; it's very memorable. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a, it's, so, it's 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 really it's pretty wonderful. Having long listened to Glenn Moore's incredible sound, I wondered what he would sound like playing along with Humpback Whales, one of my other favorite musicians. And so we slapped on a Humpback Whale recording and we started exploring and this is what came out. Thank 
lexicon a few times with it. Right, to add, add the... Just to, to some right. water of my own, some depth. Yeah, but we I, imagine that's what it sounds like underwater, of course, yeah, but it yeah. just doesn't. It's so dry. It's so, you know, like like uh, we want it to be echoey and kind of... Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it just sounds like you're stuck in the mud in this dry yeah. mix of... And so... Um, but the whales managed to have these bass-like, you know, bowed overtone type sounds, and then they, you know, so I guess it just it's the sound of desire. That's it for episode 23 of Soundwalker. This is David Rothenberg. Uh, this episode was recorded by Conrad Uno at the Dance Hall in Aravaca, Arizona, close to the border. Uh, I'd like to thank Samantha Moore, Alexander Moore, Emily Bishton, and all the dogs, cats, horses, and the desert. And thanks to Listen, Nelson, for going to so many wonderful Oregon concerts over the years. Thanks to Glenn Moore for pulling out his bass, playing tons of stories. forward to seeing you next time. Find a playlist of all the music heard in this interview under the name Glenn Moore on Soundwalker on Spotify. And then you can hear the complete bits from all this wonderful music we can put in here. See you out there walking, sounding, listening.